Welcome to Joy and Learning, a podcast from the Harley School in Rochester, New York. We are an independent school for nursery through grade 12, where there's always lots of interesting learning going on for us to share with you. For this episode, I spoke with education writer Justin Murphy ahead of his upcoming Common Series event. Enjoy! I am here with Justin Murphy. Justin, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. So you've been an education reporter for quite some time. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what you see in that space um, in terms of some consistent themes here in Rochester? And is that different from what you see in other spaces in education specifically? Yeah, that that was actually a... um a revelation sort of for me because as the education reporter i've been doing primarily education for about eight years now at the dnc uh and so i spend a lot of time reading stories elsewhere in the country to see what the currents are to steal some ideas for stories i want to do myself um and uh it became pretty evident that people everywhere write about their urban districts the same way that I write about Rochester, like, why can't they ever get together? Why is the board always so dysfunctional? Why are the test scores always so bad? Um, and of course, that's the main um, uh, narrative and, and dichotomy in Monroe County is um, <clears throat> education seems to be more or less going along fine in school districts uh, in the area, except for our CSD and you know what what sorts of interventions can we throw at it so um you know sort of thinking through and, and parsing that both what that means locally and how it's reflected nationally were uh important for me and kind of developing toward writing this book okay and, and of course education is generally a, a a controversial topic people like to argue over it but it seems that in the last several years it, there's more and more tension in the in the conversation in the dialogue um, are you seeing that and do you have any thoughts as to why now yeah for sure i'm seeing that uh i don't think that that a lot of it is at the classroom level you know education is hard to write about um because um inherently you it happens on an interpersonal level in a classroom with a given teacher and a given set of kids. And it's extremely difficult for the rest of us to observe that uh, in any meaningful way. Um, But in terms of what districts have had to deal with politically, in terms of pressures that teachers feel, I think that for sure there has been a push to uh, avoid or elide sensitive topics. sexual orientation and identity and racism and things like that um and that obviously ties into a a broader political trend in our country um i also think that you know to the extent that racism is alive and well in our society which it is of course um it's it's not that racism kind of flares up on its own. I think that sometimes it, we see these this manifestation of it when there's important anti-racism work that's finally being done and there's a reaction to that. So in that sense, I think uh, it's good um, kind of to see that reaction because that means that there's uh, some good work to be reacted against. 
It's speaking of that that racism. Um, your book sort of traces the roots of segregation in the Rochester area. Um, I, tell me about that process of researching that um, and how that parallels uh, the education system in the city. Yeah, it was a pretty long process. It took me about four years to write the book. Um, and a lot of it was um, piecing together, I think, narratives that we think of as being distinct. So, you know, there's like the story of housing discrimination, and, and we can all look back and see that now, and that was bad. Uh, and then there's a fight over integration in the 60s and 70s in the city school district at a time when the district and the city were still overwhelmingly white. And that was like very much framed, at least by some people as, um, you know, just about parents' rights, which is a thing that we still see again today. Um, and, you know, trying very consciously to separate that from this dark history in our community. And then today, um, you know, this was one of my main impetuses for writing the book is, um, Sometimes it feels like people say, yes, we know Rochester's segregated. We know that that's terrible. We know we have to get around to doing that. Something about that eventually. And also, separate topic, uh, completely changing gears. RCSD is messed up, and can you believe how, how bad they are and how stupid the school board is? Um, <clears throat> so I think, so for me in the research process, there that was a lot of, like, pulling that together to, to try to make a coherent narrative out of it. And I think that that also is an important um, directive for us as as citizens today to think about the way that all of these things work together. Which actually brings me to my next question. You, so um, it, you end the book um, with three suggestions um, uh, to advance the cause of racial integration in Rochester. Um, can, can you talk about those three things and, and uh, how you came to those? Sure. Yeah, the first one's a boring one. Uh, that is a study of ways to have interdistrict collaboration. Uh, the way that uh, residential patterns are now, that's the only way that you could have racial integration um, because of Supreme Court decisions and whatnot. Um, I came to that one because I was surprised to learn as I was researching this that uh, people have been talking about integrating um, or, or cooperating across district lines for more than 100 years, but have never managed to do so because there's um, some fundamental questions that haven't been answered, like who pays for it, who runs it, how long do kids have to be on the bus. Once there are answers to those questions, then you can have a robust community discussion about um, what's the most feasible way forward and do we really want to commit to that. One of the main um, obstacles to almost anything is that you would need state legislation. Uh, and that, of course, can be tricky. Um, but there is already an in current state law a mechanism to move kids more or less freely across district lines. And that's the Urban Suburban Program, uh, which has existed since 1965. Um, as I detail in my book and as I've written in the newspaper, that is um, currently operated in a very inequitable fashion. Um, there's a number of programs like that across the country. Rochester's is the only one where the suburban districts get to hand select kids like the NBA draft. Uh, they can be ejected from the program for any reason at all or no reason. Uh, and in general, the suburban districts don't offer a lot of 
support for those kids who have um who have said again and again that they feel sometimes unsupported in, in what's essentially an alien environment for them um so at, under current state law any any school district that participates in urban suburban could at its next board meeting set its own guidelines for participation um, saying, if we need 20 kids, just give us 20 kids. And if it turns out that some of them don't speak English, we'll just deal with that the same way that we would um, if it were our own resident students. Then um, there's a lot of things that a district could do to to make the program more equitable in their own um, in their own schools. The, the third recommendation, which um, maybe should be the first recommendation, is for uh, continuing and increased anti-racist training in schools, edu anti-racist education for kids and for adults as much as possible. Um, and I think it's it's really important to note that that is the one that has to happen no matter whether the other two do and, and before the other two do. Um, in the 60s and 70s, there was like a really favorable judicial and legislative and administrative climate to get integration done. A lot of people spent a lot of energy on it, more so than, than is the case today. Uh, and yet it didn't work, and it didn't work for the main reason that uh, they underestimated the pushback they would get from white parents. They underestimated the racist opposition to integration. And that basic dynamic hasn't changed. And it won't change unless um, there's a, a concerted kind of hearts and minds uh, educational effort to make everybody, white kids and black kids and kids of other races and ethnicities and, and their parents and everybody understand the value of this proposition and the way that we're all harmed in different ways, tangible and non-tangible, um, by living in a fundamentally segregated society, both in schools and in the rest of our lives. And that, that, that brings me right to my next point, which is, so you're from Rochester, right? Or the, the area. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I am as well. Um, uh, we're both white men. Yep. Uh, what can you and I do to try to help? Um, well, I think what's really important, um, and something that I kept in mind as I was going through this research process is to, um, you know, the first thing is, is educate yourself. Always try to be learning about something. And a lot of the times that's not just, you know, you read the book and then you did it. It's um, because of, you know, I'll speak for myself, I, I was raised in Penfield. Um, and that was such a, um, a, a white, middle-class, segregated environment that I was in that it took me a long time for some kind of like basic principles to sink in. So, so the reason I say that is that education is ongoing and you sort of have to keep thinking about it and working on it and thinking about it, working on it. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, um, you know, as we recognize the privilege that we walk around with, um, as white men or as white people or, uh, speaking for myself as cisgender heterosexual people who, you know, things just kind of come easier to me than to other people. Um, it's, it's my job to use that privilege for good. And there's not like a specific set of instructions, I don't think, on how to do that, except to have your mind open to the way that these like 
dynamics of racism exist and then at the same time be willing and thoughtful about how you fit into them because i think that that is one of the really more pernicious parts of it is that you know i grew up thinking that i racism and race in general is a thing that exists separate from me you know i'm i'm regular i'm the default and everybody else has race stuff or gender stuff or whatever um and, and of course that's not true but if that's the situation the environment you grow up in it kind of feels that way yep exactly that's a great way to put it uh you have a quote in your book um uh, about uh the joy and learning that takes place when uh when students of different backgrounds um learn together on equal footing uh, and I, I know i just butchered that quote uh but Not that it, can you tell me what what can happen when that opportunity presents itself well uh that word joy is one that i use a lot um and part of the nature of joy in in this context and others is that it's not measurable uh it's something that you observe and feel it has to do with a, a richness of of interaction and um kind of a healthy understanding by everyone involved that you fit into a, a larger mosaic with a lot of other people um and you know like uh, on a very practical level there's a lot of research and i share some in my book about the 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 specific life outcome benefits that integration has for people of color for instance or, or poor people um the benefits for white middle class people like me are um you know like the grades don't necessarily go up because on on par the grades are okay to begin with um but it's these sort of squishier things like uh there's evidence of greater critical thinking there's evidence of greater problem solving in groups from students who have been in integrated schools um but i would say in general that uh i think it is i think it's best not to interrogate that word joy too much i think joy is the thing that we feel when we enter a space where kids are respecting each other and interacting with each other and learning and under the tutelage of a teacher who, who loves and respects them um and that's a joyful classroom I think that is a perfect place for us to wrap this up. Um, joy and learning is, is one of our mantras here at Harley. Um, and, and we hope that we can help to bring more of that to more kids. Uh, so Justin, thank you very much for joining us, uh, today and, uh, can't wait to hear your talk at the next common series event. Very good. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Joy in Learning, a Harley Schools podcast. We look forward to sharing interesting stories, discussing educational topics, and exploring ideas with you on our next episode. See you again soon.